Welcome to the world of Mark's Money Mind, coming to you from the Rocky Mountain town of Crested Butte, Colorado. I'm your host, Mark Troutman, CFP. This educational, personal finance show combines money lessons, timely topics, personal stories, and community wisdom to help listeners and viewers master their finances to enjoy a stress-free life of financial freedom. For this first episode of Mark's Money Mind, I thought it would be a good idea to explain why I have decided to start a podcast and do this, and also who I am and some of my background to give you a little insight into everything about me and why I'm interested in delivering this podcast. So first and foremost, I am very passionate about personal finance education. And one of the reasons is I wish I had learned a lot of what we are going to discuss and have various conversations about at a much earlier age than I did. I had to learn through reading books. The internet wasn't really a thing. Podcasts didn't exist at the time. And I had to figure a lot out by trial and error. And I find that with this new ability to produce a show via podcast and YouTube, that this would be a great way to deliver information about personal finance out beyond what I've been able to do in the past. I also think it's really important to benefit from a community of people who are looking to learn similar things and walk a path together. And that's one of the things that I would like to hopefully do throughout this podcast. And also, I have been teaching a personal finance class at our local high school to the seniors for the past eight years. And I've seen how much they have enjoyed the class. They have found it very beneficial. And this is through conversations I've had with uh, seniors who have graduated previously and have really appreciated the class that I teach. It's basically a six-part class that I teach as part of their what's called senior seminar. The podcast is a way to kind of be an extension of that program in that I can potentially reach people well beyond my little community in Crested Butte, Colorado. We have about 1,500 full-time residents in that neighborhood, at least. I think that was the last census. I have found that these conversations with the seniors who then go home and talk to their parents have created conversations within the community, or at least with me and the community, and have been very helpful to a lot of people. And I just thought this podcast would be a great way to, to do that in a larger audience. I'm also very active in the financial independence, uh, which is also known as the FIRE community. And financial independence, for those who are unaware, is basically a point in time where you have enough assets to effectively produce income so you don't have to work anymore. And the FIRE community is financial independence, retire early. But many people are getting away from the RE portion and discussing more about just how to reach financial independence and maybe work is optional. Some people have changed the retire early to recreational employment, which I like that. And I'm always amazed at the level of knowledge that is within that community and discussed among people within that community. 
And I thought this would be an opportunity to have those conversations beyond the financial independence community to the general public at large. We're going to discuss on this podcast a lot of topics ranging from the very basic to the very in-depth. As it relates to personal finance, we'll also have discussions that are non-financial. To give you a ski analogy, I live in ski country, so I like to think of things in ski terms sometimes. Um, I would like to think that we will traverse down green runs and blue runs and black runs and potentially even go back down some double black extreme runs as well as Crested Butte is known for. We will discuss topics that range from the very simple to the very complex. And I also find that having these conversations uh, with others not only benefits people that hear that conversation, but it also benefits myself. And selfishly, I like to continue to learn. And having those conversations allows me to think a little deeper about certain topics. In some cases, I have to research things to have the appropriate answers. And that is one thing that I would like to do on the show is also invite you to submit questions that I will try to answer on the show. You can send them to mark at marksmoneymind.com and just put in the subject line podcast question. I will start reviewing those and looking to answer those on the show. So a little bit about myself and uh, some history. I graduated from college in 1987. I was 21 years old. I got a degree in business and economics. I was very lucky in that my parents paid for my college education. So I was fortunate that I did not come out of school with any student debt. I know that's an issue for many people these days. And that is a discussion that I frequently have with the seniors in the personal finance class at the high school um, about not taking on an unacceptable amount of debt for their college education. And there are certainly ways to get that education for a lesser cost than going to a high-end private college, for example. So that might be one of some of the things we talk about. I started work immediately after graduation. I started work on Wall Street. I was in a management training program. It was at a large retail securities brokerage firm. If you're a history buff, you might know what happened in 1987. So in October of 1987, I was doing my management training, you know, going from department to department. And that day on October 19th, 1987, also known as Black Monday, I was sitting on the margin desk of the Dow Jones Industrial Average, which was basically the main index that people followed at the time. And more people follow the S&P 500 now, but back then the Dow was kind of the big newsmaker and it was down 22.6% on that one day, the largest decline in the market ever and on a, on a one day basis. And I was sitting on the margin desk and the margin desk is basically where people monitor accounts where those customers borrowed money against the securities they owned. And to give you a little background, uh, in 1987, we did not have smartphones. We did not have abilities really to see quotes, or at least the consumer did not have the ability to see quotes. Um, we did at the, at the firm, we had 
what were called quotron systems where we could see quotes and what was going on. But the general investor, retail investor, would typically get their news at night or see it in the paper the next day. So I was sitting there helping out the margin clerks who were in the process of calling all these customers and telling them they needed to put up more money. Otherwise, their securities were going to be sold because they had gone down in, in value and the firm needed to protect its loans basically against those securities, which is how margin works. You get a margin call. Effectively, we were the callers. And um, if you do not put up more money, you will be sold out. So <laughs> it was a very interesting day. So I learned a lot about not borrowing against securities on that day. And that certainly is a memorable experience from that time. About a year later, I moved to a small investment banking firm, a securities brokerage firm, money management firm. I did have my securities license. I was a broker. I was also the accountant for the firm. And I also worked with the money management group to help them out as well. I was also an investment banking research analyst. So I was kind of wearing a whole bunch of hats at the time. A couple of things were interesting about that the first job I had, the first one-year job at the large firm, they did have a pension, but because I was there for such a brief period of time, they basically just cashed me out. And I was just like, oh, this extra check, okay, whatever. At the smaller firm, there, there were no retirement benefits. And I didn't even view that as a, an issue because I wasn't really well-versed in benefits packages. And I just saw that I was going to get a slightly larger paycheck. So that was a good reason to make the move. Anyway, during this whole time, so this was about a three-year period from age 21 to 24, I was living at home with my parents. I was basically spending all my income. I think I saved a little bit, but it wasn't substantial. I certainly wasn't putting money away in retirement accounts. I had a lot to learn at that point. In 1990, I got married to my wife, Marge, and we were 24 and 25 at the time. We moved into a home that we rented. It was kind of a rundown home. Uh, it was kind of funny because our parents, I think they thought we were a little crazy renting this kind of rundown house, but we fixed it up, made it nice, but we kept our rent pretty low as a result of uh, choosing that, you know, lower cost housing. So that's one thing that we kind of did right throughout our whole life, I guess you would say, is keep our housing costs pretty low. So, you know, the big three housing, transportation, and food we're doing pretty well on the housing side. I will say we didn't do great on the transportation side for a while. Later in life, kind of figured that out. We incurred quite a bit of credit card debt during that time. Uh, we paid for our own wedding. We were going to Vermont every weekend skiing. So we were paying for gas and depreciation on the car and all that stuff. And place to stay. We had a share in a ski house. Um, we had to buy ski pass. Ski equipment, ski clothes, et cetera, et cetera. So we were spending, I would say, most of our discretionary income on on skiing and related items. Ultimately, I ended up leaving that small firm and they had leased a car for me as part of my compensation. And I took over that lease. And I think the reason was because I had so many miles on the car, it was going to cost me a lot of money to turn it back in. So I took over the lease. And I ended up buying that car out. So that was a big mistake, leasing a brand new car effectively, even though it was through my employer. 
I learned that lesson. That was the last time I did that. And my wife also had some student loan debt to pay off. So we we had quite a bit of debt. We were spending a good portion of our income, probably most of our income. It was around that time that a couple of things happened. I was recruited to become a mutual fund securities analyst at a firm that one of the individuals at the previous firm left to become the chief investment officer. And he recruited me over to this other firm, uh, which was basically a bank. And in that investment department, they had mutual funds. And he had asked me to come over to be a junior securities analyst on, on the funds. And I was 25 years old at the time. About two years later, through a couple of events, the senior securities analyst left as soon as I got there. Uh, just happened to be coincidental. So I kind of became the senior analyst as soon as I started, which is kind of funny. And then the portfolio manager left about two years later. So I became the portfolio manager two years after I joined that firm. And I was 27 years old at the time. But the significant event that occurred was the person who hired me suggested that I max out this 401k plan they had. And I was unfamiliar with 401k plans because I had not had one before. And he explained how they worked. Um, and we will certainly talk about 401k plans, I'm sure, in this podcast. And he said, look, you should max this thing out because the pay raise that you are getting coming over here, the difference in pay between what you're be going to be paid now and what you were being paid previously is effectively covering maxing out the 401k and you will still actually have a little bit left over. So your net paycheck will still be larger, even if you max out the 401k. And he said, in addition, there's two very important things here. One is that they have a matching program, which many people are familiar with. You put money in your 401k and your company frequently matches it. But this company was matching dollar for dollar with no upper limit. So if I maxed out, they basically matched the full amount. And they also had a profit sharing component as well, which could be as much as 50% of the match on top. So it was a very lucrative plan. and. He was well-versed in it and explained to me how it worked and also suggested that I invest in an all-equity portfolio, which I did. And what's interesting is after that conversation, it was really striking to me. And I went home and talked to my wife and said, do you have one of these 401k plans? And she said, yeah, I think I do have one of those. And she looked into it and certainly they did. I'm not even sure if she was signed up for it at the time, but I said, you know, you should sign up for that and you should consider maxing it out as well. And she did that. So we both maxed out our 401ks from the age of basically 25 when I was hired and she was 26. So that was a significant event to us reaching financial independence at a relatively early age. The other things that were occurring around that time were I was reading more and more about personal finance. Two books that really stood out were The Wealthy Barber and The Millionaire Next Door. The Wealthy Barber is basically a fictitious story about three friends who go talk to the local barber who happens to be well-versed in personal finance and financially independent and 
He explains, you know, all the details of personal finance to them and all the things they need to do. And one of the things that stood out was saving 10% of every dollar you earn. So that kind of stuck in the back of our minds. My wife and I both read this book. And then The Millionaire Next Door was the other book. And that one was very eye-opening because we were living in northern New Jersey, an affluent area of New Jersey. And our understanding of wealth was basically the flashy cars, the big homes, and things of that nature. And The Millionaire Next Door kind of turned our understanding of that upside down and realizing that as I think Morgan Housel says, wealth is what you do not see. So people don't walk around with their net worth statements on their back or their brokerage statements on their back. So there may be some people that are very wealthy that are driving older cars, live in average homes and so forth. And that's what the millionaire next door points out. And one of the things that the um, millionaire next door also talked about was that many of those millionaires saved at least 20% of everything they earned so between the wealthy barber and the millionaire next door, we decided, well, this was good enough for them. It's good enough for us. We should institute the rule of 20%. And that is we would save 20% of everything we earned going forward and put that into uh, investment and savings. And the other thing we were doing at the time was we were paying off all of her student debt, all of the credit cards and so forth. And I'm sure we'll talk about getting yourself out of debt if you have debt and how to do that. And the way we did it was using the avalanche method. There are two kind of standard methods of paying off debt. One is the snowball method, which is paying off your smallest uh, debts first and getting some psychological wins. And then the avalanche method is the more mathematical approach, which is lining up all of your debts by interest rate and paying off the highest one first and moving down the line from there. And we chose to do the avalanche method. And the reason we actually decided to do that at the beginning was my wife reminded me a number of years ago that the reason was I had created a spreadsheet of all of our debts after the wedding because it was a pretty good amount of credit card debt as a result of the wedding and was showing her how much interest we were paying per month. And we both were like, wow, that's a lot of money. And that's what really got us to focus on it and, and clear it out. And then around that same time, there was a ski magazine article that came out. And it's kind of funny because um, it was a article about a ski bum and his girlfriend and they were living out of their car and skiing out West. And we just thought that was the coolest thing that they were living their dream. And they had this motto, earn little, spend less, invest the rest. And we were like, wow, that seems to be like the key to this whole thing is you just need to earn some money and live within your means, save the difference and compounding should take care of the rest. But we modified it a little bit. And we changed it to make some, save and invest, and live on the rest. So the reason was, A, we weren't too keen on a little. You know, we definitely wanted to earn more than just a small amount of money that would allow us to live in our car. So we changed it to make some, and some is up to you to determine what that number is. And then we wanted to prioritize saving and investing. So we wanted to put that first, so pay ourselves first, so then we came up with save and invest 
And then the balance is what we would live on. So live on the rest. And that article came out, it was in Ski Magazine in March of 1989. We probably read it, you know, maybe a year later, you know, it was probably a magazine that was in the ski house at some point. And so that was our motto from 1990 going forward. So basically the age of 25 forward was make some, save and invest, live on the rest. And we've continued to this day to kind of keep that in the back of our mind. And if you look at the Mark's Money Mind logo on the bottom there, that's the motto for the for the show and for the the blog that I had been writing before the podcast. And so we started automating our savings and investing and pretty much everything went on autopilot for a long period of time. We were building up a buffer of financial security. I guess you would call that an emergency fund now so that we always had a backstop. One of the reasons for that was when I was working for that small firm, uh, I think there was one or two occasions where I was asked to not cash my paycheck right away, <laughs> which was a little unnerving. I guess I was living paycheck to paycheck at the time and that made me a little uncomfortable. Everything worked out. It wasn't that big of a deal, but it did give me the, you know, the reason to have an emergency fund or financial security. So that was one of the things that we really started to focus on once we paid off all that debt. The other thing we did, I guess you would say right, is that we house hacked. That wasn't the way it was referred to back then, or if it was, we weren't aware of it. So we were living in this uh, rundown rental home and my wife's mother, so my mother-in-law, when she got divorced, she received the house as her settlement. And so she owned the house free and clear, but didn't have really many other assets. And she really needed to sell that home. And Marge's sister and my brother-in-law, so her husband, were living there and paying rent um, and helping her out basically to be able to keep the house and have a little bit of income coming in on top of her job. She had a small job at the time, I think. And uh, they were moving out because they were going to build their own house. And so we said, hey, you know, this is an opportunity for us to move in with her, help her get the house ready for sale, give her some rent and the rent would be a little bit lower than what we were paying. So that was beneficial to us and would give us the ability to save some money for a down payment of our own home because once she sold the house, we were going to need a new place to live. So it worked out for everyone. The house ended up selling, I think it was in 1995. So we were 30 or I was 30 and my wife was 31. And we ended up buying a home down the street, really, or kind of the next neighborhood over. But my wife's mother had nowhere to stay. And she was thinking, oh, I'm just going to buy another home. And we said, no, we'll slow down a second, because that's just going to get you back into the same situation you were in previously. Why don't you consider coming to live with us for a period of time until you figure out the best move for you? And what we ended up doing was she took some of the proceeds of the sale of the house and put the down payment on the house that we were buying. Uh, and then we took the mortgage out. And then in lieu of paying her back on the down payment for the time that she was living there, she didn't pay us any rent. And that was effectively the interest and it all worked out. And then when she decided to move out, we would pay her her down payment back, which is what we did. And she ended up buying a condo 
a couple of years later. So it really worked out for everyone, but that was basically a house hack. That's what we were doing. Um, so that really helped out. It kept our costs manageable. And then a few years later, I think it was about five years later. So I was in my mid thirties, my wife, mid thirties, same thing. Um, we bought a foreclosure and it was a very, very large house, but needed a lot of work. Our eyes were wide open with this, Hey, this house is so big and it's only X dollars per square foot. What a deal. And so we bought this house and we ended up doing a massive renovation. And if you want to read more about that, there's a post on my blog called Who Let That Lifestyle Creep In? And it talks about this massive renovation and so forth. And what ended up happening is we effectively lived in one half of the house while we were renovating one half. And then we switched sides and it was just a, a massive, expensive project. And I would never suggest anyone do that going forward. We got very lucky. The wind was at our back. Prices were going up. This was basically in 2006 that we were done with the project or almost done. I think we had one bathroom to go. And while I was working in the investment field, because I was still doing the same job, I've been portfolio manager on the equity side, and the fixed income portfolio managers would come into the board meetings that we would have quarterly. And we're telling the board about all of these loans that were being stuffed into these collateralized mortgage obligations, CMOs and crazy things. And my wife was also working at a lender and seeing the kind of loans that people were getting, you know, liar loans where people didn't have any income um, and basically just stated income loans and things like that. And we kind of looked at each other and said, this doesn't look too good. If we're going to sell, we should probably consider doing so now. And we did. We sold in 2006. And we were looking for another home, a smaller home that would probably, that would be done and not have to do all this work again. And we really weren't finding anything. So we decided, and our home actually sold pretty quickly. So we decided to rent a house around the corner. And uh, just be renters for a little while until we could figure it out. So we got really lucky because that's when the housing market really took a dive. And of course, our friends were saying like, boy, how did you guys know this was going to happen? We did not know this was going to happen. We just were lucky. We saw that we would get a good value in our home. We decided to rent because we couldn't find anything else that met all of our needs. And we literally just sidestepped a market decline and again, just super lucky. So around this time, so this was, uh, we rented the house for three years to two and a half years. This was now early 2008. Our daughter was eight years old at the time, third grade, I think. And we decided, hey, you know, and we still were skiing and we enjoyed doing that and so forth. Didn't ski as much because it was a little bit further and you have a child and so forth that Makes it hard to go skiing every weekend like we used to. But we decided, hey, you know, if we want to make a major move, this would be the time to do it. With a one child in third grade, um, this would be a good opportunity if we, if we want to make a move to a better ski location, which was always our goal. You know, originally we we're like, oh, we'll move to Vermont. Um, but then we decided because Vermont was frequently getting rain instead of snow and and so forth that we decided we'd rather move to Colorado and a number of our friends had moved out there. So at the age of 42, I walked in and basically quit my job and said, I'm moving to Colorado. And they were like, you're doing what? 
And I said, um, we're moving to Colorado. We just wanted a life change. And at the time, we had a decent financial backstop, but we were not what you would call financially independent, where I didn't need to work or we didn't need to work anymore. But this was the time to say, we have enough to make a change. We'll figure it out. But, you know, maybe there's a chance that they could work something out. But I had to be ready for them to say, okay, see you later. Have fun. And fortunately, they did offer to allow me to work remotely from Colorado. Of course, at that point, I was asking myself, why didn't I do this earlier? But um, that was the situation, and we and we moved. And then we rented a house there for a number of years, and we're lucky to actually buy a short sale in 2011. So we got super lucky in the whole housing crisis in that we had sold in 2006 and we didn't actually buy the next home. So we rented homes between 2006 and 2011 and then bought our home in 2011 here in Crested Butte, Colorado for a very reasonable amount. Housing prices here are no longer reasonable, um, but that was the case back then. So again, luck does sometimes have a play in your financial destiny and it certainly did. And we recognize that. And so fast forward a handful of years later and I was getting close to reaching age 50. Uh, that was in 2015. And I decided I wanted to be done. I had figured that we were probably well enough suited for me not to have to work anymore I wasn't really calling it financial independence at the time. I was not involved in the financial independence community. I was just ready to make a change. Maybe I would work some more. I, I really didn't know, but I just didn't want to continue to do what I was doing because I had been doing it for 25 years. I'd managed a mutual fund for 25 years or 24 years, I think it was actually. I had done it for a long enough time and I just wanted to either do something different or just have a little bit more time freedom. So I left my job. I think I must have given them, I would say six or nine months notice, something in that neighborhood. And so what I decided to do, because I was very interested in personal finance, I thought, you know what would be fun? And this is going to sound weird for some people, but for me, an idea of fun was taking the education component for the certified financial planner designation. And originally my goal was just to take the courses, learn some more. I wanted to learn more about estate planning, tax planning, insurance planning. I was pretty well versed in the investment planning um, and in retirement planning. Cause here I am, you know, at some point I'm retiring. I want to know more about retirement planning so I took the course and one of the things that you do in there is you do a lot of financial plans. And of course I did my own financial plan and I realized that I, that I was literally financially independent at that time and I didn't need to work anymore. So originally I thought I would get the CFP and then I thought I would go work for another firm or start my own firm as an encore career. What is interesting, though, is after I did the education stuff and realized I didn't really need to work anymore, my wife said, now you are going to take the test, aren't you? And I was like, I guess so. And that requires a lot of studying and so forth. And I did. I took the test. I passed the test. I really focused on it. So I didn't have to take it more than once, which some people do. And I did pass on my first try. 
And as a result of all of my background in the financial industry, the CFP board does give you credit for prior experience. And fortunately, I was given the designation as a result of passing the test and having the the history that I had in the industry. So I do have my CFP. I don't really use it for the purpose of making money, but it is something that I find very beneficial from a knowledge standpoint. So that was in 2015 at the age of 50. Um, So I was retired for about four years when in 2019, at the age of 55, my wife was diagnosed with cancer. There was some early diagnosis that looked promising that this could be treated. There was some radiation treatment and she was clear. And then there was some surgeries. So it came back, there was some surgeries, then it went to the brain and then it went all over. Unfortunately, two years after her diagnosis, she passed away at the age of 57. And the reason I bring this up is twofold. One is she said to me while I was caring for her at one point, During that two-year period, she said, I am so glad that you are financially independent or we are financially independent and that you can be here and you're not being asked by an employer to do this, that, and the other. Literally, I could focus on her care 24-7. So I realized the benefit of financial independence was not the money but it was the time that allows you to do whatever you need to do at that point in time. So to me, financial independence has a lot to do with time freedom as opposed to just having money to buy stuff or do stuff. And the other lesson I take away from that period is that I obviously learned that life can throw you quite a big curveball at times, and that your longevity is not for certain. And so we had always lived a life of balance. I had mentioned that the rule of 20%, for example, and we actually ended up saving more like 30% on average, I would say 30 to 35%. And again, that's, that's off of gross income because I think of savings as a percentage of gross as opposed to a percentage of net. And we can talk about that sometime down the road. But we always lived a very good life while we were striving for financial freedom, financial independence, ultimately. So I think it's really important, or at least I've recognized the importance of living a balanced life while you're striving for financial independence. Because if we had deprived ourselves for years or even decades to get to some magical financial independence moment, we would not have had the life that we had together that was so enjoyable. And I think that for me, it's very important to live a life of balance. And I think it's a constant balance between saving for the future and spending for today. And you need to figure out what is comfortable for you. But I would be careful about being too extreme in one direction or the other. And then lastly, I just want to leave you with this. I've been in retirement for, what, eight years now? I think it's important to have purpose, a reason to get up in the morning. There's only so much skiing you can do, hiking, biking, et cetera. And for me, financial education and continuous learning is what I feel like my purpose is. 
And that is the reason that I am producing this podcast. And I hope to share that with you on this show. And I look forward to us walking together as we learn together. And now for the all-important disclaimer. This show is for education and entertainment purposes only and should not be considered investment, tax, or legal advice. Please consult the appropriate advisor or advisors before implementing anything you hear on this show or any other show for that matter. While I fully intend for everything on this show to be true and accurate at the time of each recording, occasionally errors may occur. So please do your own due diligence on anything discussed. Thank you for listening to this week's show. Please click follow on your favorite podcast player or subscribe on YouTube to ensure you don't miss any future shows. Also, please leave a rating and review for the show. The first 20 people who send a screenshot of your review, along with your mailing address to me at mark at marksmoneymind.com, will receive some Mark's Money Mind swag. If you would like me to answer a question on the show, please send it to me at mark at marksmoneymind.com and put podcast question in the subject line. Let me know your first name or let me know if you would like to remain anonymous and also your state of residence if you choose. I would also appreciate it if you would recommend this show to friends and family that might benefit from this content. See you next week on the Mark's Money Mind show. Until then, make some, save and invest, live on the rest.